an insider's take now on how Mr. Trump actually won. And the president has the most powerful platform for propaganda. Facebook has come under fire for its role in last year's election. Is this really about marketing? Is that what political campaigns are about these days? Welcome to For What It's Worth, a new podcast that takes you into the digital spaces where the race for the White House could be won. I'm Tara McGowan, and we're glad you're here. For this week's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with someone who works behind the scenes every day to transform and modernize the way the Democratic Party operates and how they service state parties across the country. This is no small feat. That person is Nell Thomas, the chief technology officer of the Democratic National Committee, or what most of us know as the DNC. She's the first woman to hold the position. She's also the second CTO ever of the Democratic Party. So Nell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I just kind of want to start by giving our listeners a sense of you, your background, who you are. You're relatively new to this very big role, which I'm excited for our listeners to hear about. So yeah, tell us a little bit about um, how you got to this role and what you did before. Sure. So I'm a data analyst and data scientist by training. I've been working in the technology space for about, mm, I don't know, 15 years. I got my first uh, toe into political analytics in the 2016 campaign when I joined Hillary's headquarters up in Brooklyn and absolutely fell in love with the work and the people and the, the mission. And so I was really gearing up between 2016 and now to get back involved in the presidential cycle. So most recently, I was actually at Facebook, and I came to the DNC about three and a half months ago and was uh, thrilled when the team over the DNC reached out and asked me to get involved. Um, I was very excited for the opportunity to work at scale across all campaigns and not just work on one, um, but be building infrastructure that's used by all the presidentials, uh, the eventual nominee, and all the down-ballot candidates. So was the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 your first foray professionally into politics? That's right. Yeah. And I had uh, done a little bit of volunteering, and I was involved in college in some political organizations. But my career experience before that had been in finance and tech startups. Uh, so I was definitely a whole new world. I was lucky to work with amazing colleagues who taught me so much about the quirky and crazy world of political strategy, both an education and a challenge, but also just it was like finding a love. And uh, I've been really excited to continue to learn more and deepen my understanding of the political space. And what made you decide to transition in your career to work on a political campaign, which as somebody who's worked on political campaigns, it is a crazy idea because it is a startup <laughs> that is essentially uh, built to dissolve <laughs> after a number of months. So what made you decide to take that leap? So I had hired a couple uh, data staffers from Obama 2012 to Etsy, where I worked for five years and grew in built the analytics team. And obviously, the 2012 campaign had a lot of coverage of the digital and tech investments and the team. And so I had read about it and 
talked a ton to um, one of the analysts that is just a fabulous person. Uh, shout out to Samarth Basker. And it kind of inspired me and, and made me intrigued. Uh, I find resource allocation problems fascinating. And a campaign is one of the hardest and greatest resource allocation problems there is. So, I mean, obviously, there's a mission there. I care deeply about progressive values. I care deeply about having our country on the right track. But purely from an intellectual standpoint, it's also just really, really fascinating work. Um, and I definitely experienced both sides of the mission and the intellectual challenges in 16. And now I'm doing it in a whole other way at the DNC. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to dig in on that. Um, first, just kind of zooming out, 90,000 foot view. Uh, you're a data scientist by trade. You are now a chief technology officer of a national party. How, in your words, would you describe the relationship between data and technology? So the state parties collect data that people provide when they register to vote and when they vote. And the state parties all funnel up the, those lists of people and contact information they get at the state level up to the national party where you work. And then you are overseeing all of the technology that is being used to take all this data in. You're organizing it. You're cleaning it. You're making sure that it's the correct information and that there's as much information about voters as possible. And this is where I'm sure some of the listeners are perking up and being like, and to what end? <laughs> what are you doing with this information? I just kind of want to ask you two questions. One, what is the value in the national party having uh, this information in a clean and organized and applicable mm -hmm. um, format mm -hmm. um, for campaigns? And two, what are some of the new data streams that are now available given um, so much of our voter contact happens online as well as off. Great. Um, yes. So as you mentioned, we at the DNC are responsible for building the infrastructure that collects all that data, that standardizes it, processes it, augments it. We then build a data warehouse where it's made accessible to campaigns, state parties and sister committees. Uh, so the DTRIP, the DGA, et cetera. All of the acronyms. All the acronyms. That's really where the programs begin is at the campaign level or at the committee level where um, a campaign has a candidate who um, is trying to reach voters and the campaign uses the data that we provide them to determine their field program, which includes what doors to knock, what phones to call, um, their paid media program, so who they want to send mail to, who they want to try to reach on TV to the extent that you can kind of target that who they want to reach online, which demographics, and maybe even which individual people using list matching. And so, again, they're kind of doing this calculus between of we want to turn out voters that we know will support us, and we want to convince voters who we think will turn out but may not support us. Let's use all the data we have about who people are to build as targeted a program as possible that will give us kind of the highest return. The thing I'll say about data and analytics generally, and then I will get to your other question, is that I think sometimes people talk about it like it's a magic bullet or that it's some special sauce that changes fundamentally what a campaign does. Um, and I really don't believe that. I'm saying that as a data person. Fundamentally, campaigns are about talking to people and about getting people to hear a message. Analytics and data help you do it a little bit more efficiently. And it's marginally more efficiently. So maybe you get an extra five calls out of your volunteer. Or maybe you able, you're able to speak to, you know, one or two voters you wouldn't have otherwise in a rural area that's not easily contactable. But these are marginal efficiency gains. They're really, really, really important. But it's not 
necessarily where the campaign is won. The campaign is won people talking to people about who they're going to vote for and why. And what analytics and data does is just helps make that a little bit better. Yeah. And I think it's a really popular misconception that data is the strategy. Data is not the strategy. This, there's a strategy yep. and then data is a tool to help you implement a strategy efficiently, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. Great. And so something that we talk about a lot on this podcast is about how, um, you know, the evolution of the media and information mm -hmm. um, ecosystem um, to be more distributed, to be to happen more online, on your social media news feeds, on your cell phone, et cetera, obviously implied in that is there is a whole lot of new kinds of data yes. <laughs> um, and data breaches, <laughs> um, both very popular uh, topics in the press today. And so I'm really curious, you know, I'm so excited about your background generally that you come <laughs> um, from tech and digital startups and e-commerce um, and Facebook. And, and so you really, really understand digital data as well, which is something that we talk about a lot as <laughs> digital generally, another adjective that means nothing. Um, <laughs> but how, you know, taking a legacy organization like the Democratic National yeah. uh, Committee and, and evolving it to really meet the demands of a digital ecosystem and market marketplace. Um, and that is inclusive of the new data there. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. What is digital data? How do you guys store it? How do you use it? How do you protect it? So I'm going to start off by saying that I really believe that we're at a moment right now where there's a lot of new questions about um, the ethics of what data is used and how it's used. Absolutely. And it's something that we take incredibly seriously at the DNC. So we believe it's really important to think ahead to make sure that we're protecting our users, that we are not taking advantage of data that we don't think that people are consenting to give in any way. You know, we really want to be mindful of it. So I'm just getting that out of the way because I think it's an important point that isn't talked about enough when we yeah. talk about like, oh, the world of digital data. Absolutely. <laughs> also, the data that is publicly available that you're using is to encourage civic participation and democracy. Absolutely. <laughs> not to sell yeah, you toothbrushes, though that is also fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I think a lot of people don't even realize, I mean, I'm sure we know this, that they're, the fact that they're to vote is publicly available information. So, right. But the more people who do realize that, we also know from much experimentation, <laughs> can lead to yes. more people voting. Yes. In terms of digital data opportunities, I think that there are two people talk about a lot. Um, so one is just reaching people online, which is how do you find someone on the internet, on their phone or um, in an app? The other is getting information about what people are doing online and using that to feed models. Um, I think personally that we as a uh, kind of uh, technological society have made a lot more progress on the first than the second, despite what people might say. So on the first one, you, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world are getting much better about um, can yield a, what we call list match. So you upload a list of people you want to find online and then via their fun systems, uh, they're able to match those to a user and send them a targeted ad. So in that case, one of the things that campaigns try to do and we try to do is is have the best possible list to match against. So the more information you have about someone, if you have their cell phone number, if you have their email address, it increases your match rate. And so that's something that we're always thinking about is how we make sure that we are giving campaigns the tools they need to find people online the same way they can find them via mail at their home. Right. And in the interest of the voter, the consumer, it means that they're going to get more information from the DNC that's relevant to them, to their interests, to where they live, to their communities. And we think that's a positive thing. Absolutely. I think sometimes people, you know, especially in in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, and I, I was at Facebook um, in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this. 
people think that campaigns or, you know, Facebook is giving over who clicked on what ad or they're kind of enabling people to do this crazy micro-targeting based on psychographic information, you know, buzzword, buzzword, buzzword. I think a lot of that personally is smoke and mirrors um, and that it's, you know, it'd probably be like way more interesting for me to be like, we're doing this magical, you know, algorithmic psychographic targeting. I think by, by and large, a lot of that is a distraction from what really matters, which is having really good basic information about people and being able to talk to them um, with authentic messages. And so, uh, you know, on the on the future of like where will things going in terms of um, of the data that people provide online, I'm sure there will be more and more sophisticated ways of collecting that and utilizing it. So if you sign an online petition, is that then incorporated into the view of the person? You know, yeah. yes. And these challenges are not unique to the political no. landscape at all. This is a challenge in every industry right now yep. and that sort of what's possible and what companies and parties are doing with data. There needs to be regulation to inform that. It's a new landscape across the board. And so 100 percent. And I think or like the reason I usually talk about campaigns also like marketing campaigns is because I think that's the best complement to how we think about this, which is a lot of the tactics using use campaign by campaigns are also used by Warby Parker or um, Clorox or, um, you know, insert your favorite Instagram direct-to-consumer product, which is also trying to use a lot of these same tools and technologies to sell their products. The other thing I'm just going to mention quickly, and I, I think you'll appreciate this, is that I think a lot of times there's confusion between fundraising digital programs and uh, what I would call voter-oriented programs like turnout and persuasion. Um, and it tends to be that fundraising is way more optimizable. You have an outcome online that you're trying to track, much like an e-commerce company. You know, at Etsy, I worked on optimizing and experimenting around how to get someone to buy something on the platform. With fundraising, you have the same thing. You have you're trying to optimize and experiment and target around how to get someone to donate a dollar. Right. And it's black and white if it's successful. They either Check donated the dollar or they didn't. Or it, they clicked and decided not to donate and you learn that about them. Right. Figure out why didn't they click. Right. And you know, oh, people like this like to click and donate on these things. And that allows you to feed, you know, it allows also the, the, the companies like Facebook and Google to target and optimize themselves as well because you have an outcome you can track really concretely. And I also want to say because like part of the reason that targeting specific voters that, for instance, like to give to candidates or parties online get hit with more asks to give money <laughs> um, is because there is an efficiency um, objective here. You yep. can't spend money to reach everyone every single day. So you want to reach the people where that content or that call to action is going to be relevant and desired, yep. where they are going to actually engage. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so fundraising, lots of interesting stuff happening, actually. I think there's way more innovation on persuasion. Way more dollars being donated to candidates and parties than ever before. It's really yes, exciting. Yes, and way more dollars being spent, as uh, <laughs> as you guys so dutifully track in the newsletter. On the persuasion side, the outcome is so much harder because it's an outcome that happens in someone's brain, right? Are they slightly more likely to like a candidate because they saw a video of them, their, them speaking about healthcare and I think that on that front, it is just it's we're still in a little bit of unknown territory about how we really optimize those programs and how we really leverage digital and especially in terms of the measurement piece. Right. Because that part of it is really, really hard. Um, and there's some fun and interesting experiments that can be run. And I'm sure there are campaigns out there right now doing fantastic and interesting programs and experimentation. Ac acronym may also be engaged in some of that work. <laughs> Love it. Please do. Please do. But it's, it just tends to be a harder area. And obviously, the overall outcome you're optimizing for with any campaign is a binary outcome that happens once, right? And so it's very hard. It's much it's much harder problem than selling toothbrushes, to use that example again, because your kind of outcome is 
you gear up for, you know, two years, nine months, three months, however long it is. And then, you know, in one day, yes, you won or no, you didn't. And you have no idea if it had anything to do with you know, right. a given changing, act you ran. <laughs> changing hearts and minds is not as simple as selling toothbrushes, it turns out. Yeah, Absolutely. That's why um, it's a way for more fun space to work in. Exactly. <laughs> so and, you know, arguably more meaningful, <laughs> although we all need to brush our teeth. I'm really curious, just kind of pivoting from how sort of campaigns think about collecting data and using it to how um, organizers who work on behalf of candidates they support and believe in use technology mm. uh, to be able to recruit more supporters and volunteers. And I think that's a really exciting space because it's evolving very quickly. So I'm, I'm really curious from your perspective um, what that landscape looks like today. Yeah, I think there are a couple great tools that have emerged over the last four years, um, and some of which were around in 2016 and early stages, but have really um, matured, which is peer-to-peer texting. So organizers be able to text um, instead of calling, which is obviously much faster and easier, um, and you're able to do it remotely, so you don't have to be in a state necessarily. And we can talk about whether or not that's as effective, but it certainly allows you to hit scale. I think relational organizing tools as well. So for those that aren't familiar with the term, it's really about allowing people to um, understand who in their network already um, is politically engaged, could be politically engaged that's not yet, and encouraging people to reach out to their friends and family to get them to register or to volunteer or to vote for a candidate. Right, because you're more likely to take an action if somebody you trust or love or care about asks you to do it than a cold call from a campaign. Absolutely. And it's probably more effective use of my time as opposed to going in and calling through a random group of 50 strangers to spend the time thinking about the 50 friends I have who could be more politically active than they are and who I probably know a lot about without having to rely on, you know, some database. And innovation and technology in that space, I think, is so exciting. I think it could be game changing. Yeah, no, and I think that the, I think we'll see a lot more experimentation around these new platforms happening in 2020. These uh, presidential cycles and the midterms as well, but tend to be great innovation labs, and we see such cool technologies coming out of them. Um, I love the work that like Higher Ground Labs is doing and encouraging companies to um, really invest in the space and be creative about their solutions. So And bring yeah. innovation into the campaign space. Yes. Yeah. And okay, last question. And I uh, cannot um, uh, interview you and not ask this question because you are the first ever woman mm. CTO of yes. the Democratic Party, um, which is really exciting. Also sad it's taken this long, but I'm glad <laughs> it's you. Congratulations. Thank you. I've got to ask you, uh, you know, what is it like to be a woman in the tech space? Because uh, from what I've heard... <laughs> You know, it's, <laughs> it's not that common and it's not often the best. But I'm very curious about your your experience, um, certainly being the minority gender yeah. still. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because I don't have the, you know, I'm an analyst. So I always think about, do I have the the experimental data? And I don't. I only know what it's like to be a woman in this space. And so it's hard to know what it would be like if I was a man, but I would say I do ask myself that question way more often than I probably should. You know, I've been incredibly lucky in my career and I've had great opportunities and wonderful mentors, but I do think I question how would this be different if I was a man or, you know, and people perceive me this way because I'm a woman. I've been doing a lot of fundraising recently and some of the donors asked me, when are you planning to have children or... Love those questions yeah. uh, from my mother and the donors. Yeah, I know. I, I, I literally say, please just talk to my mom about this. But, you know, I think there are those type of kind of moments that happen and I'm like, this is a little weird, um, but not necessarily 
enough to ever make me feel like I don't want to be doing the work, but enough that it kind of causes a little bit of extra energy and mental space um, that I think probably I wouldn't have to spend otherwise. And do you do you feel as though more women are getting involved in data and technology roles and sectors? Definitely. I think that there is a huge shift in the especially kind of the generation coming out of college right now where you actually have data science programs for the first time. And there's a real focus on obviously engineering, diversity, and I think also as data. So I do think that uh, gender diversity is getting better. I think that there's still a huge problem with people of color not being underrepresented. And that's something that we try to be very mindful about in all of our hiring and recruiting. And I think it's something that we just need to continue to really spend the time on, um, you know, talking about, thinking about, and acting on, because I, I do think that that's a space that I don't see the change happening as quickly, and I'm, um, I'm nervous about it. Yeah. And so, sorry, last, last question. Okay. <laughs> um, what would you say to people who are listening who work in tech or data and have never worked in politics but might be interested in getting involved in this election in particular? Do it. <laughs> I mean, get involved. I would say... Um, start with, I mean, this is, I'm going to say things that you'll probably hear from other people. Start with your local races. See if there's something nearby. Please. All politics is local. Absolutely. And if you can walk into your state party's office and volunteer with them, help them fix their Google Sheets. Everyone has problems with Google Sheets. There is Um, no job too small, people. (laughs) Help them update their G Suite security settings. There are lots of little tasks that go a really long way. Um, be humble. Don't go in and say, I'm going to solve all your problems. Um, and, but, you know, give yourself the opportunity to learn from people who are doing the work and start in the field, start in state party offices, start with local campaigns. I think that's a great thing to do and go from there. And I think there's huge opportunities. Um, also, donate to all of your favorite yep. organizations to vote and get them registered and that's turn right. out that's right most importantly just like be engaged and pay attention absolutely well thank you so much now for joining it's thank such a you pleasure. this was awesome have you back soon <laughs> that's all we have for this week if you want to take a deeper dive into the state of digital politics and if you're not already a subscriber to our weekly newsletter also called for what it's worth you can sign up at anotheracronym.org slash F-W-I-W. 